This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our This Day in History segment, brought to us by Hillsdale College, the best place in America to learn about our nation's history, the Constitution, great literature, and all the things that matter in life. And if you can't go to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their terrific and free online courses. On this day in history, a man with a name you certainly know, but you probably don't know the man. He was born on this day in history in 1918. This hour, you'll come to know this American legend as we celebrate his life. The year was 1983, and standing on Wall Street was a guy thoroughly from Main Street, looking thoroughly ridiculous. In a grass skirt, this 65-year-old man was about to do the Hawaiian hula for all the world to see. This is going to be terrible. Grab him by the hand. And I'll never do it again. I'll never challenge our folks again. You can never stay I'm uh, fulfilling an obligation to my, uh, our employees. Uh, I, I, I wagered with them a year and a half ago that in the year of 1983, they never could possibly achieve a better than 8% net profit corporately. This wasn't any old man. This wasn't any old executive. This was the most successful entrepreneur in America. This was Sam Walton. And this is a story told by his company, Walmart's then CEO, David Glass. Sam Walton came down to my office and he said, uh, do you think anybody in the company remembers that I promised to do the hula if we made 8%? And I said, everybody in the company remembers that. And he says, well, you got me into it, so you arrange it and don't screw it up. And, uh, and left. Well, I had a trip that I had to make to, uh, to New York. And so we got up there and we staged this thing and there was press from everywhere. This is so ridiculous, but uh, I tried for three months. Well, I thought for two months that, that it would actually happen. But our numbers were just barely 8% pre-tax. 8.04. And, and everyone in the company said, Mr. Walton, you've got to perform. We did it. Now you do it. I, okay, you ready? A humility born and bred in his Great Depression upbringing. His family would move from town to town in Oklahoma and Missouri, his father always looking for that better opportunity that he'd never quite find. But his example and his words did shape Sam's life. He told young Sam to work, work, work. And he did, laboring in the first job of many an American dream story, a newspaper boy. I worked my way through college with carrying papers. It was a good way to make money, and I could hire substitutes. I hired a substitute when I needed one, 
and that let me do other things that I wanted to do. His brother Bud later said they had a contest. He won that contest going out selling new subscriptions door to door, and he knew he was going to win. It's just the makeup of the man. His confidence, only worth its weight in gold because it was backed up by golden effort, continued to be forged with the Boy Scouts. In his autobiography, Sam wrote, "I was so competitive that when I started Boy Scouts, I made a bet with the other guys about which one of us would be the first to reach the rank of eagle." I got my eagle at age 13, the youngest Eagle Scout in the history of the state of Missouri. Training that would help him save a drowning boy's life. The Shelbyna Democrat newspaper wrote this in the summer of 1932. Because of his training in Boy Scout work, young Walton grasped him behind. As he had been taught to do, pulled him to the shore and applied artificial respiration that scouts must become proficient in. And then came college. Sam wrote of the time, with all this competitive spirit I had back then, I even entertained thoughts of one day becoming president of the United States. Closer at hand, I had decided I wanted to be president of the university student body. I learned early on that one of the secrets to campus leadership was the simplest thing of all: speak to people coming down the sidewalk before they Hello, speak you to、doing? you. Sam Walton. Even if they didn't, I would still speak to them. Hi, nice to meet you. I'm Sam Walton. How you doing? Before long, I probably knew more students than anybody in the university, and they recognized me and considered me their friend. In 1940, the fraternity newspaper ran an article called "Hustler Walton." And it went like this. Sam's ability to lead has been the cause of much ribbing. His military uniform has let him be called Little Caesar. For his presidency of the Bible class, he suffered the nickname Deacon. Sam might have taken all this leadership talent all the way to the president of the United States, but he couldn't afford the tuition at the Wharton Graduate School where he wanted to go. And so he let this dream pass away with it. And yet it would turn out that his lack of fortune would turn into a greatest of fortunes. And when we come back, we're going to dig into more about the life of Sam Walton. By the way, when we had interviewed author and Eagle Scout Michael Malone, he told us about the honor medal which Scouts get for risking their life for that of another. Only thirteen thousand Scouts out of a hundred million have been awarded that award. And only 1,500 have gotten the honor medal for actually saving someone else's life. And the effect and the impact of the Boy Scouts is felt deeply in this man's life, and that's why we featured it. We love the Boy Scouts here at Our American Stories, and we love to celebrate these great successes, bootstrapping from nothing to the greatest and biggest company in the world. More after this: the life of Sam Walton. This is Lee Habib with our American Stories, and we're back with our hour-long celebration of Sam Walton, the founder of Walmart. 
And we continue where we left off with Sam not having the fortune to attend the Wharton School of Business, turning out to be his greatest fortune. He was born on this day in history in 1918. Needing something to do, Sam figured he'd try out an opportunity that came his way. Management training at J.C. Penney. He even met the old man James Cash Penny himself, who watched him wrap a package for a customer, and then came over and said, Boys, I want to show you something. And he took a box about the same size, and he went around it with paper and let it overlap about like that, maybe a quarter inch. Then he went around it with twine, one time like this, and one time like that. And he tied it. He said, Boys... You know, we don't make a dime out of the merchandise we sell. We only make our profit out of the paper and string we save. This experience gave Sam the retailing bug he couldn't kick, and eventually led he and his young bride Helen to buy a variety store franchise called Ben Franklin in Newport, Arkansas, a town of 7,000. Helen wouldn't let them move to a town any bigger. It would be a town they'd come to love, and came to love them. Sam, using his sidewalk tactics, quickly knew all in town, with his fans driving his sales from 72,000 to 175,000, and into the position of President of the Chamber of Commerce. We were mavericks even then, and we started doing strange things like cranking up ice cream machines on the sidewalk on Saturday night, Popcorn, popcorn on the other end of the sidewalk, hawking anything we could hawk on that uh, looked like it might have a chance to sell wherever. They had the life until it was taken from them. Their landlord called up on a seemingly normal day and said it was over for them. He wasn't going to renew their lease at any price. The kicker, he wanted their business for his son, and they had little option but to sell it to him. There weren't any other prime locations available for them to move their shop. And so they would have to move towns. They would have to start over. Sam later wrote, It was the low point of my business life. I felt sick to my stomach. I had built the best variety store in the whole region and worked hard in the community, done everything right. And now I was being kicked out of town. I blamed myself for ever getting suckered into such an awful lease, and I was furious at the landlord. Helen, just settling in with a brand new family of four, was heartsick at the prospect of leaving. But that's what we were going to do. Helen and I started looking for a new town. They chose a town few knew then, but many know now. Bentonville, Arkansas. I think a lot of people at that point might have said, well, I've had it with this retail business. I'm going to go to work for Sears or I'm going to be a car dealer or something. He'd say, well, what did I learn out of this? And then get on with it. Sam also tried new things. He became the third self-service variety store in the whole country, a transformation unknown to most Americans today. But before this, clerks would go along with you when you shopped and pull all the items for you. Sam learned about this radical change through how he learned about almost everything from others. Sam wrote, 
I read an article about these two Ben Franklin stores up in Minnesota that had gone to self-service. A brand new concept at the time. I rode the bus all night long to two little towns up there. And sometimes this great key to Sam's great success got him into trouble. Sam would shamelessly enter his competitors' stores with his little tape recorder. Tired at two ninety-nine. Furiously making notes about prices and merchandising ideas. At one ninety-nine. And well, at Seoul Price's store in San Diego, Sam finally got caught, and they took that little tape recorder from him. But then again. This practice of checking out and adopting the best of others also directly led to Walmart. Kmart, Sears, and Woolworths didn't see Sam coming until it was way, way, way too late. He was the stealth retailer. I've been into stores of competitors with him, where he he would uh, take off his baseball cap and put on sunglasses and just wander into the store so nobody would know who he was, and he would see, you know, a price. Of, on something that was lower than his price at his store down the street, and he would get on the phone and call down to that store and tell them to lower the price right then. Sam had become the largest independent variety store operator in the country, and yet the business itself seemed a little limited. He'd write, "The volume was so little per store that it really didn't amount to much." I mean, after 15 years, we were only doing 1.4 million dollars in 15 stores. You know me. I began looking for whatever new idea would break us over into something with a little better payoff for all our efforts. That idea would be discounting. The paradoxical idea of selling at a lower cost and lower profit margins, but in turn would generate such a higher volume that it would generate higher profits. A few folks were experimenting with it around the country, and so there went Sam around the country, exploring their experiments. And next, you know, Walmart was birthed into life by a man without much direction besides forward. I've been terrible about setting goals all my life. A goal you think he might had? Well, he didn't, according to former vice chairman Don Soderquist. His desire to always focus on being the best. We did not focus on being the largest. That wasn't the focus. The focus was being the best at what we did. Walmart did become largest, but it was something that naturally happened because they were the best. Here's Don on Sam's real goal. Sam was driven by the idea of we're in business. To serve people, let me let me just share with you what Sam's vision was. His vision was to reduce the cost of living for people who shopped in our stores, and it began in small rural communities, spread to mid-sized markets, spread to suburban areas, and ultimately to uh, major metro areas. The discounting approach alone wasn't enough for Sam. He had to save his customers more. Out of his organization, writing, every time Walmart spends one dollar foolishly, it comes right out of our customers' pockets. Every time we save them a dollar, that puts us one more step ahead of the competition, which is where we always plan to be. A plan that led to an unforgettable memory for Gary Reinbold, 
who recounted, one time in Chicago when we stayed eight of us to a room, and the room wasn't very big to begin with, and Sam was one of the eight. J.R. Pitt Hyde III, a Walmart board member and the founder of AutoZone, had very similar and very vivid observations. The boardroom was what was normally a buyer's breakdown room, which had a linoleum floor, and the board table was two fold-up cafeteria tables pushed together with a white tablecloth over them, and we had metal fold-up chairs. So one thing about Sam, he, he was the ultimate culture thrift guy. In 1985, Forbes named him the richest man in America, a complete surprise to the whole world, and certainly to Sam. He later wrote, It wasn't too hard to imagine all those newspaper and TV folks up in New York saying, Who? And he lives where? The next thing we knew, reporters and photographers started flocking down here to Bentonville. Welcome to Bentonville, a tiny town in the northwestern corner of Arkansas. It seems a million miles away from the moguls of Wall Street, but America's richest man calls it home. I guess to take pictures of me diving into some swimming pool full of money they imagined I'd had, or to watch me light big fat cigars with $100 bills, while the... Coochie Coochie Girls danced by the lake. I really don't know what they thought, but I wasn't about to cooperate with them. So they found out all these exciting things about me, like I drive an old pickup truck with cages in the back for my bird dogs, or I wore a Walmart ball cap. One of the things about Walton that made him special was this aw shucks persona. He seemed to be an unsophisticated man. This is the greatest merchant of the second half of the 20th century in the United States. This is Lee Habib, and what a story. Great work by my whole crew here. Uh, it always stuns me, and when we come back more on this great American life, celebrating the life of Sam Walton, this is Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we're going to continue with this hour-long celebration of Sam Walton, and we are broadcasting from Oxford, Mississippi, not too far from Bentonville, and one of the things that I think deeply animated Sam was that if you travel throughout rural America, you know, the people in the poorer parts of this country actually were paying the most for things, because the distribution cost to get to these little small stores was actually driving the price up. So it wasn't just that he was lowering the price of things for your ordinary Americans. He was lowering the price of things for the people who needed that price break the most. It was people in cities who were getting the breaks who made more money because in the cities there were greater distribution hubs. So he was not just solving a problem. He was solving a problem for the people who needed it the most. Let's return to this compelling story. 
Sam had barely taken any money out of the company he had built. All of his wealth and all of his capital was still at work, working to help Walmart expand, to help other folks work, to help other folks save. But he couldn't have done it all on his own. He couldn't have forced a culture of thrift down the throats of his people. He insists that his people were the key. Our company is built on people. The success we've had is because of our people. Sam recruited hard to get the right people, people who shared his vision. One guy in particular he spent years selling to get him to come work for him, a guy who would later become the CEO, David Glass. Here's David talking about Sam's first trip, trying to sell him on Walmart. Uh, when I saw the Harrison, Arkansas store, uh, I, I thought to myself, this is, this is absolutely the worst discount store or retail store that I've ever seen. Uh, Sam bought a couple of truckloads of watermelons and he'd stacked them up across the front of the store. Uh, he had donkey rides for the kids out on the parking lot and what he didn't anticipate is that the temperature was about 110 degrees in Harrison that day and the watermelons began to pop and that watermelon juice began to run all over the parking lot and uh, the donkeys did what donkeys do and uh, and sort of tracked through all that. You can imagine what it looked like. Let's just say a more prudent store opening is something that could be fixed. But David noticed something else that's much harder to get right out of the gate. The thing I didn't realize about Sam, though, and the people who were involved in those early days in Walmart is that they had a quality that I haven't seen in many people or in many companies. And that was that there was never a day went by that they didn't improve something. Sam mostly did this by visiting the stores. Sam decided he needed to get around faster than his old station wagon could take him. So in the late 1950s, he bought a plane that gave him the freedom to visit any store at any time. Sam knew nothing about planes, but he figured if he could drive a car, he could fly a plane. He used this thing pretty much like a station wagon. He would just go out, get in it, turn the key, and leave there no never any checklist one time we took off and the door wasn't closed yet and he would swoop down low and say okay you look for the airport and the faa would come on and tell him to get he wasn't allowed to be that low and he'd just turn off the radio he was always visiting the stores both his and other folks they'd take family vacations from europe to yellowstone one summer they decided to head to the east coast Sam drove their station wagon, complete with a canoe on top, right into New York City. We wanted to take the children to a Broadway play. We had to make a decision. Would we just go to that play in the clothes we were in? Oh my gosh, I'll never forget it. The people came in in their furs, their formals, and there were these people from Arkansas. Sam was all right taking these vacations, as long as he could visit stores throughout. I would sit in the car with the kids, quipped his wife Helen, who of course would say, Oh no, Daddy, not another store. We just got used to it. 
His associates also got used to him visiting, to listening to them. Well, hi, Nancy. Hi, Janice. Hi. How are you? Doing hi. so good, Mom. It's been a long time since I've been over here. Yeah. Hi, buddy. I hope you have a good career with us. And he began to use all manner of goofy gags, like pep rallies, to motivate them. All of you raise your right hand, will you? If a customer comes within 10 feet of me, if a customer comes within 10 feet of me, I'm going to look him in the eye, look him in the eye, and greet him. So help me sing. The very hokiness of it was one of the things that allowed Walton to come in under everybody's radar. I think a lot of people who were sophisticated, who were located in big cities, couldn't believe that some clown in some town nobody ever heard of doing some cheer that sounded ridiculous could be taken seriously. One guy who pushed the limits of this was Phil Green, an early store manager. Sam recounted the tale, writing, We opened store number 52 in Hot Springs, Arkansas, the first store we ever opened in a town that already had a Kmart. Phil got there and decided Kmart had been getting away with some pretty high prices in the absence of any discounting competition. So he worked up a detergent promotion that turned into the world's largest display of Tide, or maybe Cheer, some detergent. He worked out a deal to get about a dollar off a case if he would buy an absolutely ridiculous amount of detergent, something like 3,500 cases of the giant-sized box. Then he ran it for sale, $1.99 a box, off from the usual $3.97. Well, when all of us in the Bentonville office saw how much he'd bought, we really thought old Phil had completely gone over the dam. It made up a pyramid of detergent boxes that ran 12 to 18 cases high, all the way to the ceiling, and it was 75 or 100 feet long, which took up the whole aisle across the back of the store, and then it was about 12 feet wide, so you could hardly get past it. I think a lot of companies would have fired Phil for that one. But Walmart didn't, and Phil went on to sell every single one of them in a week. You know, in Sam Walton's book, Made in America, he wrote about taking on Kmart and what the competition meant to Walmart, and in the end to us all. Sam wrote, quote, I don't know what would have happened to Walmart if we had laid low and never stirred up the competition. My guess is that we would have remained a strictly regional operator. Then eventually I think we would have been forced to sell out to some national chain looking for a quick way to expand into the heartland market. We'll never know, because we chose the other route. We decided that instead of avoiding our competition or waiting for them to come to us, we would meet them head on. It was one of the smartest strategic decisions we ever made. In fact, if our story doesn't prove anything else about the free market system, it erases any doubt that spirited competition is good for business not just customers, but the companies which we have to compete with one another too. Our competitors have honed and sharpened us to an edge we wouldn't have without them. We wouldn't be nearly as good as we are today without Kmart. And I think they would admit we've made them a better retailer too. And that's what we love to do here in Our American Stories. Tell the stories of free markets, the real benefits to society, to us all from competition. More after these messages 
and the legend, the real-life man, Sam Walton. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We're celebrating the life of Sam Walton, and my goodness, what he did for America. Look, the guy employs 2.2 million people worldwide. That is his company. $482 billion in sales last year. $7.2 billion was returned to shareholders through dividends and stock repurchases. So imagine that. All those retired grandmothers and grandpas, all the teachers who have money in pension funds, That's a return on investment, folks. That's what happens when you have profits. Oh, my goodness. How tragic to have profits. By the way, he saves the average American family $2,500. And that's why families flock there. It's like a gigantic tax cut going to Walmart. If only our government worked half as efficiently, a quarter of as efficiently as Walmart, what a country we might be. And with that accountability that Sam had to the preservation of capital and the real respect for money, and that it represents hard-working people's assets. And my goodness, I don't think we think that way about Washington, D.C. Bernie Marcus, the co-founder of Home Depot, another great retailer. And by the way, we're going to be doing an hour-long piece on Bernie. What a life story. Another giant with a giant love for merchandising. He once said about Sam Walton, We feel a great affinity for Sam and Walmart because of the way they treat their people. We look at his operation with all those hundreds of thousands of people, and you walk in there, and they're all smiles. He proved that people can be motivated. The mountain is there, but somebody else has already climbed it. But if you ask Sam how's business, he's never satisfied. He says, Bernie, things are really lousy. Our lines are too long at the cash registers. Our people ain't being helpful enough. I don't know what we're going to do to get them motivated. Then you ask some of these CEOs from other retail organizations who you know are on the verge of going broke, and they brag and tell you how great everything is. Really putting on airs, not Sam. He's down to earth, and he knows who he is. So let's continue this story where we left off. American families have gone on to save an average of $2,500 a year. Thanks to Walmart. Savings that translated into profits. Profits that Sam shared. Because they weren't just his. We've made partners out of our folks rather than employees. And they know that we've been sincere in trying to share the profits with them. And they, in turn, have worked harder than our competitors. It was Sam's wife, Helen, who suggested he make the profit available to all Walmart employees. I said, Sam, if you're going to pay that kind of money to new executive offices, how do you spread that benefit out among the people? Don't they deserve a raise, too? Because they're the ones who make it possible. 
And Sam said, well, now that's not quite true. The, uh, it, it takes good leadership to lead people uh, in a situation like this. And I said, oh, I don't care. I think, I think you're wrong. Sam finally listened to his wife, and in 1972, Walmart opened its profit-sharing plan to all employees. Given the enormous profits to come, those employees could hardly believe their good fortune. Bob Clark, a truck driver, had this to say. I went to work for Mr. Walton in 1972, when he only had 16 tractors on the road. The first month, I went to the driver's safety meeting, and he always came to those... There were about 15 of us there, and I'll never forget, he said, if you'll just stay with me for 20 years, I guarantee you you'll have $100,000 in profit sharing. I thought, big deal. Bob Clark never will see that kind of money in his life. I was worrying about what I was making right then. Well, last time I checked, I had $707,000 in profit sharing. And I see no reason why it won't go up again. I've bought and sold stock over the years and used it to build onto my home and buy a whole bunch of things. When folks ask me how I like working for Walmart, I tell them I drove for another big company for 13 years, one they've all heard of, and left with $700. Then I tell them about my profit sharing. And when I retired in 1992, I got a check in the mail for $738,000. How do you think I feel about Walmart? Finally, in 1988, when Sam was 70 and his retail operation was pulling in almost $16 billion a year, he phased himself out of the day-to-day operation. He and Helen took time to travel together, and on a trip to Central America, they decided to do something with their money to counteract what they saw as the long reach of communism. The Waltons set up the Latin American Scholarship Fund to send 180 students a year to one of three Christian universities in Arkansas. We think they need to learn about the government of the United States that caused that, where everybody gets to vote, people aren't afraid to vote. And then what Sam called the highlight of our entire career happened. The President of the United States, George H.W. Bush, came down to Bentonville to give Sam the highest civilian honor bestowed by our nation, the Presidential Medal of Freedom. We come here to honor a man who shows that through hard work and vision and treating people right, uh, many good things can happen. Uh, This visit is not about Sam Walton's wealth. He's been generous with his fortune, and that is in the great tradition of America's commitment to this concept that I call a thousand points of light. It's not about money. Visit's not even about philanthropy. This visit is about what is fundamentally good and right about our country. God kept Sam alive for this final chapter of his life, as his son Rob Walton tells us. A few days later, Dad entered the University of Arkansas Hospital in Little Rock. Even in the final weeks of his life, he took great pleasure in doing what he had always done. One of the last people he spoke with outside the family was a local Walmart manager, who at his request dropped by to chat with Dad about his store sales for the week. Then less than three weeks after receiving the Medal of Freedom, and just days after his 74th birthday, 
Dad's struggle with cancer finally ended. On Sunday morning, April 5th, he died peacefully, as inspirational in facing death as he had been in facing life. We will miss him. Near the end of his book, Sam wrote, I don't know that anybody else has ever done it quite like me. Started out as a pure neophyte, learned his trade, swept the floor, kept the books, trimmed the windows, weighed the candy, run the cash register, installed the fixtures, remodeled the stores, built an organization of this size and quality, and kept on doing it right up to the end, because they enjoyed it so much. Hallelujah. Glory be. Thank you. Let's go to work. Double time. Yeah! And great work to the whole team, Alex, John, Greg. Just superb storytelling. And, well, thank you to the to the Walton family and to Sam for this life so well-lived, instructive. And this is a great American company that is just pilloried by certain critics. And I want to be able to play this story to almost any human being and say, just tell me what part of this story you don't like again. I really want to understand it. I want to understand it. And that's what we do here at Our American Stories. We just tell the stories. In his book, Made in America, Sam wrote about one of Walmart's greatest challenges into the future, a more daunting challenge now that he has passed. Sam wrote, quote, The bigger Walmart gets, the more essential it is that we think small. Because that's exactly how we have become a huge corporation, by not acting like one. Above all, we are small-town merchants. And I can't tell you how important it is for us to remember when we puff our chests and brag about all those huge sales and profits, that they were all made one day at a time, one store at a time, mostly by hard work, good attitude, and teamwork of all those hourly associates and their store managers, as well as by all of those folks in the distribution centers. If we ever get carried away with how important we are because we're a great big $50 billion chain, Instead of one store in Blytheville, Arkansas, or Macomb, Mississippi, or Oak Ridge, Tennessee, then you can probably close the book on us. If we ever forget that looking a customer in the eye and greeting him or her and asking politely if we can be of help is just as important in every Walmart today as it was in that little Ben Franklin in Newport, that we just ought to go into a different line of business because we'll never survive this one. He was born on this day in history in 1918. He also wrote about one of the great challenges for a successful family such as his, writing, quote, As long as I have anything to do with it, and I'm confident this attitude will last at least another generation, most of that Walmart stock is staying right where it is. We don't need the money. Thank goodness we never thought we had to go out and buy anything like an island. One of the real reasons I'm writing this book so my grandchildren and great-grandchildren will read it years from now and know this. If you start any of that foolishness, I'll come back and haunt you. Don't even think about it. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Hope you've gotten to know one man better that you didn't know, whose store, if you have half a wit of sense, you shop in regularly. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. You can go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to catch all of this.
Lee Habib with our American Stories, and now it's time for our This Day in History segment, brought to us by Hillsdale College, the best place in America to learn about our nation's history, the Constitution, great literature, all the things that matter in life. In this feature, you're about to meet someone you've probably heard of, but who you likely don't truly know. Shakespeare asked, What's in a name? When the name is Aster, the answer's easy. For more than 200 years, the Aster name has been synonymous with power, prestige, grandeur, luxury, elegance, and riches that royalty would envy. Astoria, Queens in New York and Astoria, Oregon are both named after him. Even the renowned hotel Waldorf Astoria in New York bears his name. This wealth earned John Jacob Astor many admirers, but also many bitter opponents. Astor united breathtaking willpower with global vision, all in a time when instant communication, or even telegraphs and railroads, were a distant dream, writes Phil Anschutz. Astor is a name unto itself, but then who really knows the man behind the name? A German immigrant who became America's first multi-millionaire. Johann Jakob Astor's life began in the tiny town of Waldorf, Germany in 1763. Johann and his eight siblings rarely had enough to eat. His mother died when he was three and his dad was an abusive drunk. Johann! At 15, Johann was finally able to escape this ordeal. He followed his oldest brother, George, who became a successful instrument maker in London. Johann Jakob Astor thus commenced an apprenticeship under his brother's tutelage. He quickly learned the secrets of making musical instruments and rapidly learned English as well. He became truly masterful in negotiating with British upper-class customers. 1783, the American War for Independence is over. Johann Jakob Astor decided to expand the musical instrument business across the Atlantic. At 20, he boards the North Carolina and sets sail for America to test the promise that through hard work, anyone can succeed. By this time, he's going by the name John Jacob Astor and speaks fluent English. After a 16-week arduous passage, Astor reaches the coast just outside of Baltimore. Shortly before reaching its destination, the ship runs aground on the ice. A disaster as the ship's provisions have been exhausted and a famine threatens all on board. But John Jacob does not want to wait for the thaw like the other passengers. The coast is in sight. He's the first and only one to climb from the ship and walk across the ice to Baltimore. For weeks, a penniless Astor walked along the coastline until he finally reached his new home. Here's Edwin Burroughs, historian at Brooklyn College. When the Astors arrived in New York, uh, the Revolutionary War had just finished, maybe three, four years earlier. Um, what they came to was a, a, a 
a, a village, really, um, much smaller than modern Manhattan. Most of it is confined to the area below present-day Chambers Street. So it's a little tiny area, maybe a square mile at the southern tip of Manhattan. Had a population of maybe 30,000 people. There was also a, a, a small but growing number of poor landless whites and slaves in the town. New York was still a slave society. It was a place where many people doubted that New York had much of a future. So it was a time of great uncertainty, but I think also a time of great opportunity for people like the Astors who were willing to try their hand at anything that would make a dollar. Astor was a skilled salesman and clever strategist. As soon as his brother's instruments arrived from London, he took out advertisements in the newspaper and rented sales space. However, young Astor's career will be boosted by an unexpected and fortunate twist of fate. One morning, the merchant meets his landlady's daughter, a shy, no-nonsense girl named Sarah Todd. Sarah Todd was descended from a well-established Scottish family with excellent contacts to shipping companies and merchants, as well as business and social networks, which provided the requisite startup capital for his later businesses. Thanks to a $300 dowry, the young husband can open up his business after a short time. Luxury goods such as furs and fine musical instruments lure paying customers into his shop. While Sarah Astor worked in the shop, her enterprising husband was on the prowl in the backwoods of the United States. A mountain man of sorts. He discovered a new and extremely lucrative line of business. The fur trade. It was a time when the brown gold beaver pelt traded in the wilderness for a pittance would fetch a pretty penny in the outside world. For months at a time, Astor would hike through the forests to the Canadian border at Montreal in order to acquire furs that he could then later sell to his New York clientele. However, at that time, Montreal belonged to the British crown, and trading between the empire and foreign countries was strictly regulated. Nevertheless, in order to import furs from Montreal to New York, Astor used his connections. His merchants would first send the goods to his brother George in London, before shipping the now-declared goods back to New York. Astor is one of the few that ventured this and was able to crowd his competitors out of the market. And when we come back, more on the life of John Jacob Astor. This day in history, as always, brought to us by Hillsdale College. This is Our American Stories. John Jacob Astor died on this day in history in 1848.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now we return to the life of John Jacob Astor. I'm in New York City, standing at the corner of what is today Broadway and Astor Place. It was here where Astor built himself a pretentious mansion after 10 years of shrewd decision-making and hard work. By this time, Astor had four children, and Sarah Todd's dowry paid for itself 100 times over. Astor had become vain. He had a portrait of himself commissioned. Here's Lucy Cavaller, author of The Astors. Stewart made him look exactly the way he looked, and he was not a handsome man. He had a big nose and small eyes, and he got fat rather early. The painting wasn't flattering enough, so Astor refused to pay until the artist, the great Gilbert Stewart, who is best known for the unfinished portrait of George Washington, the one that appears on our $1 bill, painted a new one. I very much liked your portrait of George Washington, Mr. Stewart. I want my portrait to be modern, but with a strong effect on the viewer. A portrait of a successful entrepreneur, a patriot, and a man of exquisite tastes. Yes, sir. Stewart complied and created a portrait to make John Jacob look like a refined gentleman with a much slimmer appearance. When the new century rolled around in 1800, Astor's fortune was estimated at a quarter of a million dollars, an incredible sum at a time when a family could live handsomely on about $800 a year. But Astor wasn't satisfied. He wanted to become a global player. He invested in ships that took furs around the world. China was a major market, and when the ships returned to America, they were filled with exotic spices, weapons and ammunition, silks, teas, and smuggled opium. Astor literally made money coming and going. But if he was proud of his success, he kept it to himself. Here's Astor's descendant, Jackie Astor Drexel. He was definitely a very secretive man. He liked to get things done and quietly and not have anyone realize what was going on. And he was thrilled by the idea that he'd made a million dollars before anyone knew that he could possibly have come close to that mark. In 1810, Astor dreamed of founding his own city. Up until now, the United States is comprised of only a few states along the eastern seaboard. But President Thomas Jefferson advocates the conquest of the west coast. Astor dispatched one of his ships, the Tonquin, to the west coast. He expected to earn enormous profit predicated on establishing trading posts between New York and what was then called Fort Astoria. Today, the small town of Astoria, Oregon, has 10,000 residents and is probably best known as the shooting location for Steven Spielberg's 1985 cult classic adventure comedy, The Goonies. Sorry, Dad. 
We had our hands on the future. We blew it to save our own lives. Sorry. It's all right. You and Brand are home safe with your mom and me. That makes us the richest people in Astoria. Walsh, you're looking at the richest people in Astoria. Before the global demand for furs collapsed, the canny businessman sold off his American fur company and cultivated new plans, real estate. His philosophy was simple, buy in acres, sell in lots. He understood how New York was growing and how to take advantage of that growth because if you could buy real estate further uptown in a faraway place from downtown like, say, Greenwich Village, which New Yorkers now think of as being sort of in the middle of New York, but in those days was a, a little farm village on the outskirts of the city. If you could buy land in Greenwich Village and just wait a few years, then suddenly the city was going to arrive and your investment would be, you know, worth many times what you had originally paid for. A modern city must be like Karlsruhe or Mannheim. Mannheim is a contemporary city. Astor needed to convince the mayor, DeWitt Clinton, that New York must become a modern city. It's important for the real estate owner that no bad or good locations be created, but rather as many equal value locations as possible. 35th Street to 42nd Street. There. Now these would be the streets. 35th Street, 36th Street, 37th Street. It is the real estate developer John Jacob Astor who bestowed upon New York its geometrical layout and sequential avenues and streets. One of his first acquisitions was a 75-acre lot purchased in 1803 from a debt-ridden whiskey distiller. Today, here in the middle of Times Square, sits that very parcel of land Astor bought over 185 years ago. Gentlemen, I present to you each with a pistol. Examine them closely. I will then count to 10. That same year, he also bought considerable land from the Vice President of the United States, Aaron Burr. Three, four. The very next year, Burr would kill fellow founding father. Alexander Hamilton in a famous duel. Ten, ready. John Jacobs' real estate dealings poured even more wealth into his coffers. Astonished by his colossal success, he once said, Could I begin my life again, I would buy every foot on the island of Manhattan. At the beginning of Astor's real estate endeavor, property appreciation was calculated at about one-third. It will be more than a hundredfold in the end. Astor was a charmed man living a charmed life, but one cloud darkened his horizon. Of John Jacob's six living children, one was mentally disturbed. It was his firstborn son, the one who should have been Astor's primary heir, John Jacob II. Astor hired a doctor to stay with his son all the time. He also built a house with a high wall around it to keep his disabled son confined. During the 1830s, Astor repeatedly travels to Europe. 
only Valdorf his place of birth does he consciously avoid. Then the saddest of news awaited him upon returning home from one of his continental tours. Mr. Asher, welcome back to America. I have some bad news for you. Uh, first off, uh, your wife, she has died. And one week ago, your, your brother is dead too. And I also must tell you that your daughter, she has passed away as well. I'm so sorry. A witness reported that he'd never seen Astor so dejected as on this day. At first, Astor rambled around in his comfortable home, but it held too many memories. Yet Astor's ability to absorb setbacks and transform them into long-term gains was a legendary component of his success, writes Phil Anschutz. This resilience allowed him to rebound for a second act. And as always, we hear this theme again and again in our This Days in History segments, particularly the businessmen, resilience, and second, third, and sometimes even fourth acts. So many of the people we feature here not making it, really making it, until their 40s. In Ray Kroc's case, the 50s, and Bernie Marcus as well, the founder of Home Depot. Kroc, of course, the founder, truly, of McDonald's. When we come back, more on the life of John Jacob Astor. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And as always, our This Days in History are brought to us by Hillsdale College. And by the way, if you can't get to Hillsdale College, Hillsdale will come to you. They're terrific online courses. There's one on C.S. Lewis you can't miss. There's another on the Constitution called Constitution 101. It's a class that, well, even if you'd gone to a good law school, as I did, uh, it's better. It's just better. I didn't learn any of the things I learned in law school that I did sitting down in Dr. Larry Oren's class in Hillsdale, where I'm lucky enough to teach two weeks out of every year. Go to hillsdale.edu to catch all of their great work. And now we return to our This Day in History. And on This Day in History, John Jacob Astor was born. And when we left off last, at 70... This man decided to start a new chapter in his life. Again, folks, the age of 70 starts a very new chapter. Let's take a listen. 
So the aging entrepreneur came up with a new way to make money and leave the memories behind. At the age of 70, Astor demolished his home on Broadway and put up the largest and most expensive hotel in the United States. When it opened, it was called the Park Hotel. Only after it had become extremely profitable, his demands were satisfied, and it had developed a reputation for luxury and elegance throughout the city, did he rename it the Astor House, in order to connect his name with a positive business image. And it had 300 rooms, it had 17 bathrooms, it had carpeted corridors, every room had a basin and a pitcher, it had free soap, and of course for all that luxury you would have to expect to pay a lot, and people did, it cost $2 a day. Despite that exorbitant price, the hotel was a sensation. Anyone who was anyone stayed there. Abraham Lincoln, Charles Dickens, the Prince of Wales, Edgar Allan Poe, and even Davy Crockett. Today, the Waldorf Astoria Hotel is still located in the center of Manhattan, and its reputation remains untarnished. The hotel's success made Astor even more of a public figure. With so many more people now aware of his tremendous wealth, he received more and more requests for charitable donations. But he managed to sidestep these matters. A minister one day came in to see John Jacob Astor and said to him, Oh, you have the means to do so much good, it must give you a great deal of pleasure. To which John Jacob replied, Oh, I don't know about that. Having the means doesn't mean that you have the disposition to do good. The situation outside of the hotel at the beginning of the 19th century was intensely distinguishable. New York is plagued with poverty. By the 1820s, uh, New York was famous around the world, actually, for a, a neighborhood known as the Five Points, which stood just, just a little bit north and a little bit east of where City Hall now is. The Five Points was the, one of the worst slums in the Western world, this according to Charles Dickens, among others, who came and walked around it. Um, these are people who are flooding into New York from places like Ireland. They're desperately poor. They have, uh, they have no place to live. The city doesn't have an infrastructure to accommodate large numbers of people. At my challenge, by the ancient laws of combat, we are met at this chosen ground to settle for good and all. Who holds sway over the five points? Us natives born rightwise to this fine land or the foreign hordes defiling it. The density of the population in New York since Astor's arrival has increased dramatically. Originally there were 30,000 residents, but now the metropolis has more than half a million. The situation is coming to a head. In 1837, there is an economic depression, which actually started in London, expanded to the European continent, and from 1837 through the early 1840s, targeted the U.S., which led many people in eastern states, where the depression was most prevalent, to pack their things and commence the famous overland treks to Oregon. Thousands go west as new federal states are established. The East stagnates. When Astor arrived, uh, what was the United States extended 
only along the eastern seaboard. It didn't even reach the Appalachian Mountains. By the time he died, California was a, on the threshold of becoming one of the states of the Union, and the United States encompassed much of, of what it now covers. That's a tremendous story, and it's, it's as much a, a, a remarkable story as the growth of New York City itself. And basically, New York in, in Astor's time, as he was really accumulating his big real estate fortune, was essentially wide open. It was a kind of Wild West atmosphere. Uh, and the only thing that really mattered, essentially, was a man's private word. The real estate prices in New York fall. Tenants move out or discontinue paying. Inflation gnaws at Astor's capital. He himself sees opportunity in this economic crisis, rather than any kind of defeat, and buys up more real estate, which after the crisis proves very profitable for him. Due to Astor's immense wealth, he can hold out a long time in order to weather out this economic depression. Thousands lose everything. Astor emerges victorious. Astor was very unemotional. He was very rational. He always knew when the time was ripe to engage in a line of business and when it was time to get out. Charles Dickens modeled Scrooge in his story, A Christmas Carol, after John Jacob Astor. I don't make many myself at Christmas. I can't afford to make a lot of idle people many. I hope to support the institutions we've just mentioned. They cost enough. People are badly off, they'd better go there. Many can't go there. Many would rather die. Well, if they'd rather die, they'd better do it. I'm sure that uh, my great-great-great-great-grandfather was probably greatly unscrupulous. In fact, uh, a lot of people have felt that to be the case. Astor's likeness to Ebenezer Scrooge may well be a likeness he justifiably earned. But like Scrooge, he also gave. And when we come back, we're going to learn about what happened to this vast fortune that John Jacob Astor put together. And as we learn in so many of these cases, so much of the great wealth that's accumulated by so many of these men and women end up going right back into the cities and into the places where they built those fortunes. And we're going to learn more about Astor and more about Astor's wealth after he died, after these messages from our local and our national sponsors. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. To listen to all of our This Days in History, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. We have nearly a hundred of them up there now. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org, and click the This Day in History icon. More after these messages.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now the final installment in this great story of John Jacob Astor. And we left off with this Scrooge-like reputation. And let's take the story from there. Astor's likeness to Ebenezer Scrooge may well be a likeness he justifiably earned. But like Scrooge, he also gave. Here's Ivan Obolensky, a descendant of Astor. There's a tradition in certain families that when you and the Astors were amongst the forefront, um, if you make a lot of money, you give thanks by doing uh, good things uh, to uh, put it back in, to say thank you. Astor donated money for a mission in Waldorf, his place of birth. The sum of 500 gold dollars is worth so much in Germany that the mission can be built and operated simply from the interest. But Astor would also like to erect a memorial in the United States for posterity. During this time, Astor commissioned Washington Irving, the renowned author of Rip Van Winkle and The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, to write a history of his fur trading colony in Astoria, Oregon. It was during their collaboration that the storyteller shared an idea about what he thought Astor should build next. A library. Donate a public library to the city of New York. Just like in London and Paris. It will bear your name. No, that's quite all right. It will increase your popularity. It will make you immortal. Astor dispatched an agent to Europe in order to purchase books valued at several hundred thousand dollars. The Astor Library on 5th Avenue and 42nd Street, now known as the New York Public Library, though it receives no public funding, is to be a memorial for him and American democracy. It is the largest and most visible legacy from John Jacob Astor, who never saw it open. Here's New York historian Brendan Gill. Well, $400,000 for a library at that time is, is an astounding sum. It was a very large sum. But people were more surprised, I think, by the fact that he left anything uh, to charity, that he became a philanthropist on his deathbed, uh, was more startling than the sum itself. In 1848, Astor was 84 years old. His servants rocked him periodically each day so that his body had some exercise. Then on the morning of March 29, 1848, John Jacob Astor died at his home in New York City and was buried in Trinity Church Cemetery in Manhattan. But the death of John Jacob was not the end of the Astor dynasty. For almost 200 years, the Astors have influenced New York's high society. The great-grandson, John Jacob IV, is so famous that his death on the Titanic in 1912 made front-page headlines. Of all the wealthy travelers on the fateful ship, Astor was the richest man on board. The wealthy heir was returning from his honeymoon and became one of the 1,500 casualties. And, um... That's John Jacob Astor, the richest man on the ship. 
His little wifey there, Madeline, is my age and in a delicate condition. See how she's trying to hide it? Quite the scandal. <laughs> His pregnant wife, Alice, was rescued, and Vincent Astor was born. Then, in the middle of the 20th century, Vincent began putting the Astor money into a trust. His wife, Brooke Astor, who became known as the First Lady of Philanthropy, decided over her 105 years of life the importance of donating the entire fortune. In the year 2000, the then 98-year-old Brooke Astor was honored for her roughly $200 million Astor Foundation charity donation. My family used to say to me, Brooke, don't get beyond yourself. She thought uh, that all the Astor wealth was made in New York, so she should spend in New York, reinvest in New York. Try to always help them, everybody. And if they're absolutely nuts and stupid, well, stay away from them. <laughs> she used her giving as a catalyst for others to give. And second, she used her clout as a first lady of New York, an official first lady of New York, to generate others to give it. And that was one of the important points. I want to be known for being one of the first people to really go and see what they give to. Because I think you can give much more intelligently if you see what you're giving to. Astor Foundation projects benefit the young, the old, the sick, the healthy, and everyone in between. The Astors have created a unique legacy, a legacy not lost on the current generation of Astors. I don't think about it every day, but every now and again it, it dawns on you, think, gosh, it's nice to be connected with a family that has a name of such recognition, to be an Astor. The poor immigrant, John Jacob Astor, would be astounded to see how far his family and his fortune have come. And as always, great job on that, Greg. And if you've ever had the chance to get to the New York Public Library, and again, there is nothing public about it in terms of financing, it's just open to the public. And go to the reading room of the New York Public Library and do something crazy. Get a book and read. It's an amazing place. And there are people actually in there reading and writing. And they're from all over the world. And Bryant Park is magnificent. And the building, you just can't believe that one person did this. Yeah, Mr. Stingy, Mr. Tightwad. Well, he kept all that money. He knew how to make the money. And look what happens to the succeeding generations. And anybody who ever grew up around New York City knew the impact that Brooke Astor had on that city. And it was astounding. And she was always kneecapping people and pushing people into giving to just terrific causes. And again, imagine $200 million going towards in a very private effort the people who needed it the most. And this is the story of most American wealth in this country, folks. And you don't hear it anywhere else. And you're certainly never going to hear these stories on any college campus. You're just not, because it would really upset the myth and the narrative. We learned from Bernie Marcus that he had started with nothing. He got hired, hired and fired a few times, fired at the age of 50, and then founded on a napkin Home Depot. And when it was over, he had a, he had a fortune. And his Jewish tradition of tzedakah, which is the equivalent of Christian tithing, 
propelled him into charitable giving. And he had recalled his mom, even when they had no money growing up in Newark, New Jersey, always saying, we've got to give to people who are less off. By the way, we've forgotten this. We don't require the poor to give too. And tithing was required by all of us, all of us, rich and poor. And Bernie decided to build the Georgia Aquarium. And by the way, not the Marcus Aquarium, the Georgia Aquarium for the state that gave him all the opportunities to build that great company. And it was $250 million. And he built it himself. And poor kids could always go for free and see fish. And go figure. And again, you're not going to hear that story. Guy starts with nothing, comes from Russia as a Jew, gets discriminated against through much of his young life, builds an incredible enterprise, and then gives almost all of it away. And what part of that story don't you like, folks? And that's what we do here in Our American Stories. We tell the stories of great wealth. We love telling the stories of small businesses, of immigrants. Go to our July 4th story on all the different folks who've come from all over the world and taken that induction and that oath of loyalty to the U.S. Constitution and to this country, which, by the way, should be required of every citizen at the age of 18. Everyone should have to take that oath, and you should read it one day. It'll move you. And... That's what we do here. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to catch all of our storytelling. Our This Days in History will capture many of the great businessmen's rise to wealth. And then, as almost is always the case, you'll learn this in the Rockefeller story, uh, then that wealth gets redistributed, redistributed by the person himself who built that wealth back to the people, not to the government, so the government can decide how to redistribute that wealth. And it's a beautiful thing. And... Again, OurAmericanNetwork.org. Catch the stories, and most of those done by Greg Hengler, who is always uh, a silent type on this show. We try to get him to talk, and, and we prod him, and we, and we push him, and then every once in a while he'll explode on the Hengler rants. And uh, so you can go to the Hengler rants and catch some of the old ones and some of the good ones. Uh, and once again, Our American Stories. Go to our This Day in History. I think we have 100 of them are 100 plus, and as always, are this days in history brought to us by our friends at Hillsdale College. And go to hillsdale.edu to catch all of their great storytelling. And right now, their C.S. Lewis series, a 10-part series on the great British theologian, uh, it'll get you. And he's the, he wrote the Chronicles of the Nar- Narnia and, of course, Mere Christianity, which may be one of the greatest theological works, plain simple and startling if you don't believe in god you'll have to rethink it and if you do believe in god maybe you'll know a little bit more why you do this is lee habib this is our american stories more after these messages 